0: Well, good morning. Well, I am thankful to be back with you guys. Um, For those of you who don't know, myself and a few other guys from the church uh, made the incredibly long journey to Africa, to uh, the county of Tharaka, which is like you go to Africa, you take a left, and you get in the middle of nowhere, and that's that's where we were. official direction. So if you're going, just, just follow that route. You'll be there in no time. No, we were there. We were serving uh, with a group called Hamare. Uh, we were helping to, specifically what we were doing was helping to build um, a uh, facility for pastors to sleep in at a training center. So as some of these guys, we found out, were traveling I think one guy, was it 50 miles, was that, did you hear that, or was it 25, something like that. It was a very long, I'm looking at one of the guys that went, uh, a very long time traveling. They would walk, basically, to this training center, so this provided a place for them to sleep, uh, literally protection from the lions and everything else. So it was a really good time. Uh, Lots of amazing things happened. We'll have to uh, sit down and share more about that uh, in the coming weeks. You can always find Josh or Mark and ask them any questions you want to about that. But as I said, glad to be back, glad to be uh, back in the U.S. We had a week to recover, to rest, uh, and for me to uh, write this sermon. Uh, It was good. Uh, If you're a visitor and you don't know me, my name is John Mark. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Christ Church. Uh, And what we're going to do this morning is dive back into Paul's first letter to Timothy. If you're new, you haven't been around, we've been walking through uh, this letter looking at each part and talking about the different things. So that's where we're going to pick back up. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. So what I want to do is read them and uh, dive in. And if you read ahead, you know these verses are quite the doozy. So it's going to be fun. Uh, Let's read, and then we will uh, pray. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8, it says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And she will yet she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, let me pray. <laughs> There we go. We'll just end there. You guys, chew on that and have a good lunch. Now, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for how it is living and speaks to us. Father, it is not by accident that Christ is called the word. In him we find truth the way, and the hope, the forgiveness of sins. Father, let these words live to us this morning. Let them speak to us. Father, with a gentle heart, we would ask that you would speak to us this morning as a father speaks to their children. Hard words are often easy to hear from those who love us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, to state the literally obvious fact, this is a hard text, right? Um, in fact, in, in my preparation for, for this uh, adventure that we're going to have this morning, uh, the commentaries all kind of agree that this is one of the most complicated uh, sections of the New Testament. I won't say the most complicated. That sounds like I'm bragging. But it is, it is up there, one of the most complicated texts, to exegete, to, to kind of get to the meat of and chew on what God is saying here. So this is one of those joys of preaching, right? Uh, that we get to walk through, the way we walk through Scripture, we, we take a, a book at a time. We're not going to just pick the good parts because then you hear the same message from 50 different verses every year. We're going we're gonna to walk through a text and we're going to take the, the easy, the clear, the, the, the things that say, okay, yes, God. And then we're going to take also these things that are like, okay, God. Let me deal with this, and we're going to take it all and walk through it. We can't just skip the hard stuff. We're going to get our hands dirty and do the work of walking through uh, texts like these. And so I want to lay all my cards on the table. This sermon was super difficult for me to put together. I struggled so much trying to figure out what what is the best way to present this. Because I am, if you guys know the Enneagram, I'm like the ninest nine that ever nined. Um, I am very much a peacekeeper, and so hard words are like, make me real uncomfortable. So, uh, <laughs> you know, these verses are literally, uh, for our modern ears, for our modern culture, it's like poking a hornet's nest, you know, digging in and just getting them all riled up. In particular, these verses are not easy, and the commentaries, so many commentaries, uh, are not always at a consistent uh, a consensus as to what nuance to add to which part of which verse in what way so that we can we can come to uh, you know the meaning of these verses in first Timothy but nevertheless as complicated as this was as much as it is uncomfortable for me at times to be uh, dealing with these harder topics these verses are in the Bible right this is God's word. And they're not there by mistake. It wasn't like, oops, Paul didn't mean to say this. You know, Paul had had a bad day. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that kind of thing. These, these verses are in the Bible. So there is something to learn. There is something that we must apply. God's word is not void. God's word is not empty. And so while I am not confident in my own scholarly abilities, I am confident in the word of God. I'm confident that it will be useful in all ways for teaching, for correcting, for instructing, for convicting us, and then pointing us to Christ. And so that this morning is, is um, to say that, that we may not go deep exegetically. We're not going to dive into every word, and I'm going to pull up the Greek dictionary because I don't know Greek, for one, um, uh, we're not going to pull that up and, and spend all this time. This is not going to be some deep exegetical study of every interpretation possible of this text, nor is this going to be some, some highbrow ivory tower dissection of the Greek text. So I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I know you guys were looking forward to that. Um, but instead what I want to do is spend, spend our time this morning reflecting on this passage of what God has laid on my heart for, for us, for the people of Christ church this week concerning these verses. So as we dive in this morning, I want to set the stage once more. I gave you kind of that, that preamble of I'm, I'm uh, inadequate, but I want to kind of remind us of where we're at, because putting these verses in context helps when we prepare a sermon, when we think through things, we put it in context of, okay, who is, who is the original intended recipient? Who is Paul speaking to in the moment? It doesn't stop there, obviously. We look and say, okay, who, who is it in the moment? What does this say about Christ, about the gospel, about the church, about the people now? So, so there's so much to consider, but we have to set the stage uh, and remember that Paul is writing these words to Timothy, right? This is the man he left in charge of the church in Ephesus to finish putting things in order. Now, in the, in the intervening months or years or weeks or however long it was from when Paul departed and left Timothy in charge, what, what we see in this letter is as Paul is writing is these false teachers had aris- arisen in Ephesus, right? And they had began to to corrupt the church and to lead them astray. And as Carrie reminded us last week, this is uh, what what Paul began his letter with, um, this reminder of the charge that was placed on Timothy and Paul as they served this community. And so if you go back to chapter 1 and 5, you have that reminder that says, the aim of our charge is love issued from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So the charge placed on Timothy— is to lead this church in love, which is so contrary, right, to the, the way in which these false teachers were operating, right? Their aim was not love. Their aim was power and position. Their aim, aim was of fame and of glory and of self-seeking. And so that's what these, these men are doing in the church. But Paul is reminding Timothy and setting the stage for the whole of this text that the, the charge, Timothy, is love. And that is to how you are to lead. You are to uh, love these people and have a love for Jesus Christ that that is to be what you operate out of as you lead this church. And then from there he moves on in verse 2, and it goes from warning. Verse 1 is warning of the dangers of these false prophets, of these false teachers in the church to um, shifting to correcting the influence that these teachers are having upon the church, right? So you have, here's, here's the, the thing they are doing and what they're saying is wrong and here's how it's impacting the church. And so that's where we're gonna pick up in verse two. It is, our text this morning is Paul writing to Timothy on how men and women ought to behave in the family of God. And right, he's going to carry this from, from chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 3. You're going to, we're going to look at the qualifications of overseers and of deacons in the coming weeks. And so that's what he's doing. And if you don't believe me, look at, look at 3.15 when he finishes this, this ramble, this, this monologue he's giving on, on how men and women ought to behave in the church. He says, I am writing you these things. In, in verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so as we consider these texts this morning, these verses this morning, that's the context. Paul is writing Timothy to remind him that in love he is to instruct the men and women in the church in Ephesus on how they ought to behave in the household of God. how they ought to behave as members of the church of the body of Christ. And then, you know, as we dive back in, you can say, okay, we have one verse directed towards men, right? Men get chapter 8, and then the rest, or verse 8, and then women seem to get the rest of this, this section we're looking at this morning. Now, I will say as to why that is, um, there were specifics that Paul was dealing with, right? He was looking at the, the consequences of the, the teachings that these false teachers were having. But also, I would remind you that while, while the section we're looking at today is, is primarily focused on women, there is a lot in the verses surrounding that do, deal directly and solely with men and those men who are called to leadership specifically. So it stands to reason that, that from the text, though not stated specifically— And explicitly, that among the followers of these false teachers, as he dives into this text and begins to talk about uh, the way which women ought to uh, behave in the household of God, it stands to reason that uh, among these followers of these false teachers were many prominent and outspoken women. And you can see in, in chapter 5 and 15 of 5, it even so uh, says so, so much that, that many of these women have been uh, misled into um, sin. And so these false teachers were most likely teaching that the roles of men and women could be reinterpreted from the traditional roles, and they could be cast off. So, Paul is going to specifically address the roles of men and women in the body of Christ to correct the error that these false teachers are reporting. So, with that, with that long explanation, I'm going to read the text one more time, and then we're going to talk about it. It says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, and she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so you have this explanation, right, that, that Paul is diving into about how women ought to comport themselves in the household of God, and then he does something weird, right? He throws creation into it. That seems odd, right? Right? Did it strike you as It struck me as odd. All of you are looking at me like you're scholars, so congratulations. <laughs> Y'all were not confused. I was confused. Uh, and so there's something going on here, right? There's something going on. Paul is, is saying, okay, here's how women ought to do this, and there's this creation story. So when I was in Africa uh, last week, two weeks ago, um, we had an opportunity to do some, some evangelism. Uh, in evangelism, when you're uh, unable to speak a language, and people who are unfamiliar with the gospel, we told stories, right? And so the stories were just laying the foundation for the pastors who are there so they can come back and say, okay, here's a frame of reference for the God of the Bible, and, and they can begin to share and, and tell them who Christ is. But the, the stories that we were there sharing were simple stories, right? And so the uh, the other guys were telling the story of creation, so Genesis one, and so you had uh, uh, sharing with through through an interpreter just the story of creation, how everything, everything that these men and women worshipped and assigned different values was all created by one God, a loving God, and then in in my turn, uh, I was sharing the story of the fall of man from Genesis chapter 3. I told the story of how how sin entered the world and how Adam and Eve, failing to fulfill the roles that they were given by God, fell into sin and how as a result of that sin, a curse was given because of their disobedience. I, I told them, uh, of how how the ground now would not bring forth on its own, but only by the sweat of the brow and of the face would, would man would man work the soil all the days of his life and how he was created from dust and dust he would return. And then also we talked about uh, the the pain in childbirth for women would increase and that the women, their curse would be the, the desire of their husband, though uh, he would rule over her. And as I told this story of, of the fall of mankind... To this crowd, this was not a large crowd. We did it a few different places, but primarily because, because the men were, were working or tending the, the sheep or the, the goats specifically, um, the, the, the audience was primarily women. And as I told this group, this story to a, a small group of mostly women, and from what I could tell, all had children, multiple children, right? Um, these women had been through what I can only assume because we were out in the bush and then we left the bush to go further deep. And that's where we were meeting with these people. Um, these, these were not people who had um, modern conveniences and amenities. As I looked at that crowd of women, I knew that these women knew the under, uh, when I mentioned the pain of childbirth, this was not lost on them. This was not misunderstood or some abstract thought. They knew well the pains associated with childbirth. And as I spoke, I became keenly aware um, of their understanding of this and how this sunk in as they nodded their head when I got to that part. And it was translated through the pain of childbirth. And that thought stayed with me as I was preparing the sermon this week. Genesis chapter 3, right? The saddest story ever told. You have all human sorrow, all human death and heartache and pain um, find their origin there. Every sad thing that ever was came into being in that moment in Genesis chapter 3. Mankind fell under a curse of sin and death, and with that, you can see humanity's relationship with God is twisted and corrupted because there is brokenness there. Uh, there is separation from sin, and men and women as well. Their relationship was fractured, right? In this creation story, you have you have God creating man and woman and perfection and then sin enters, right, and you have, instead of men leading in service, you have him going, it's the woman's fault. It's that woman you gave me, God. It's her, right? And instead of woman su- sub- submitting and fulfilling her role, you have this, this uh, saying, okay, I can, I can lead. I can do what I want, and, and coming into sin through failing to understand her roles, and then the relationship with each other was fractured. You see, man failed to lead his wife in a way and instead blamed her for the sin, and woman failed to submit to the husband's leading and was instead misled, right, and deceived by the serpent. So that's the story that you see unfold in chapter 3. There is sorrow. There is heartache. But even in that moment, right, there's hope. Genesis 3.15, you have you have uh, in the moment of despair and heartache and brokenness and the curse is being given out, God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall crush your head, though you will strike at his heel. So even in the curse, right, God gives us this great hope for his Undoing of it. God made us enemies of the serpent forever, but not enemies of each other, not man against woman. For even her daughters, the pain of childbirth would be great, but there is still joy in those moments when your children are born. There is still hope found, and then there is the great joy of salvation that would be found through the one born of woman. Right, Galatians 4:4, the one born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. So, even, or so God even then gave us hope for our rescuer to come. Even in that broken, terrible moment, under a curse, he gave us hope in his son. And so, as we look at these verses this morning, with that in mind, this idea of, of, of brokenness, of sin, of the curse falling upon man and woman, we can reread this text with this in mind. So what Paul is doing here is, is referencing the reason why he, he gives you, okay, here's how men and women ought to behave in the church, and then he says, because of creation, he is referencing God's original order in creation, Paul is not merely choosing, and this is an important part to notice, Paul is not merely choosing roles for men and women out of thin air. He's not simply adapting to the modern cultural expression of the day, right? He is saying that there is something about the way in which God set things up in the beginning that makes this kind of of order, of, of way of life, good, and so John Piper says it this way. In other words, Paul is saying that true manhood, true womanhood, mesh more effectively in ministry. They are better preserved, better nurtured, better and more fulfilled, more fruitful. And this is the pattern for home and for church that, uh, better than any other pattern because God made it to be this way. And so it is part of his gracious design for the good of men and women. So what Paul is doing here is saying that before sin entered the world, God ordained that man and made Adam, rather, God ordained and made man, made Adam to be a loving, caring, and strong leader for his wife Eve. And before sin entered the world, God ordained and designed Eve to be a partner who supports, honors, uh, and follows Adam's leadership and helps him carry it through. Both in the image of God, right? This is not merely Paul talking. This is both in the image of God, both equal in their godlike personhood. But also, very different in their manhood and womanhood. What sin did was corrupt what God created. Sin caused man to abandon Christ-like servant leadership that he was called to and instead pervert it and distort it, whether in one direction, right, to apathy and lethargy or to the other direction and be harsh, and demanding, and domineering. And what sin did was take woman's loving support and help and corrupt it one direction to selfish manipulation or the other direction to defiance and helplessness. So sin corrupted God's intended order. So that's what Paul is driving at here, right? That's why I've spent 15 minutes talking to you about this. This was the created, created order. This is what he is calling his church to. To the intended order that he created. So what does this mean? Uh, what does manhood and womanhood look like in the context of the body of Christ, Right? So we set the stage. He, he explained through the fall and through the um, or origin of man and woman. But what does this look like for us in the body of Christ? So I want to focus on a few of these uh, hot-button words, right, uh, from these verses and look at them one at a time. And obviously there's, there's a lot to cover here, right? you have everything from, from the way in which, which uh, dress is approached for, for men, lifting holy hands. There's a lot to cover, but I wanted to zero in on a few things and discuss those and point us back to Jesus. But let's look at verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let l- women learn quietly so some of your translations may say silence, let women learn in silence, or let women learn and be silent. So what is this silence? And you can look and notice that the word quiet or silence is actually used in a few other verses nearby, right? What, what um, Carrie read last week in, in chapter 2, verse 2, that um, we are praying and offering supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving for all people that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. So you see it there. And then again in verse 12, you see it, especially at the end of verse 12, the same words used again, but this time what we can see to understand this word of quietness, of silence, you can see what Paul had in mind in the end of verse 12 when he contrasts it with authority. He says in verse 12 that I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men, but to remain quiet. So, in other words, what he's saying is this, this quietness is the opposite of exercising authority over men. He's saying, literally, don't exercise authority over men, but instead be quiet. Okay, so the question is, what sort of quietness does Paul have in mind? And so you look at it in, in created order, Right? It's the kind of quietness that, that respects and honors the leadership of the, the men, specifically that God has called to oversee the church. Remember, remember the context in which Paul is writing. Paul is writing about the way these, these false teachers have come into and corrupted the church body in Ephesus. And so this is his way of correcting this trajectory. And so verse 11 says that the, the quietness is in all submissiveness. And in verse 12 it says this quietness is the Opposite to the authority over men, so the point is not whether women should say anything at all, right? You you can say, okay, Jesus is telling us to be quiet. This is fun, but this is not what it, not the point of what's going on, right? What he is saying is here, here is uh, it is not that women should say nothing at all, but whether that she is submissive and whether she is supporting the authority that, of the the men that God has placed to oversee the church. To say it another way, quietness means not speaking in a way that compromises the authority of those whom God has placed in leadership. So quietness. Next one we can look at, right? I do not permit women to teach. What does Paul mean when he prohibits women from teaching? So, what, it, what we can assume based on the context, right, and based on scripture itself, where we can allow those, those easier passages to interpret these more difficult ones, um, Paul is not saying that every kind of teaching is forbidden. Paul is not saying that there's blanket, don't let them teach. In fact, this is contrary, right? And I, 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 di- I didn't write this down, but I think it was um, Jewish tradition at the time said that when, when people came to temple, men could listen, women could hear. And so that was the regulation placed on women by the, the Jewish tradition, which was women were not able to listen and to learn and to understand, merely to hear the Word of God, and so there's a contrast being being uh, presented here. And so it's not that every kind of teaching is forbidden to women. In fact, you can see even, even later in this when, when Paul is talking about the widows, that there is to be a training from older widows to younger. You see that there. You see that in Titus chapter 2. There is uh, training of, of older women for younger women. There is the teaching of children, right? You have, you have uh, uh, Timothy's own mother and, and grandmother teaching children there. And so beyond that, you can even see in in Acts uh, that there is some other instruction that happens uh, with Priscilla and Aquila working together, right, and the the teaching and the training of Apollos that happens in the book of Acts. And so what you have is countless examples of women teaching, and even in, in the presence of Paul, right, with the full knowledge of Paul, In these certain situations, uh, they are, are teaching, and so you have countless examples in certain situations in the New Testament. So what does this mean, and what is Paul meaning when he's saying, I do not permit women to teach? And so I think, again, the next and safest thing to do is to let the next phrase kind of guide us in where he is going with this. The next phrase is, I do not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over men. Instead of letting this word teach mean anything we want it to mean or think it might mean, it's safer to say it probably means the kind of teaching that somehow and in some way relates to authority. In this situation, teaching and the exercise of authority go together. So at least we can say that Paul forbids the teaching women from teaching when it is part of the exercise of authority over men. Now there are, there are countless discussions, right? And this is where you can kind of get bogged down. and may be a great discussion for for small groups or for for later on. Um, where we can um, sit down and say, okay, well, well let's flush, flush this out more, right? What, is, wh- what would be the, the um, ways in which we can apply this principle? But I think it's important to note that the teaching is in direct relationship to the exercise of authority over men. And so that final word I want to consider is authority. Authority. All right, so you have okay. There's there's a principle of quietness, a principle of of the um, way in which women are are teaching, but now we have this exercise of authority over men. So, what authority is Paul speaking of here? So, for context, as you read the rest of First Timothy, you see that the roles of the elders of the church are to govern and to have authority over the church and to teach, right? So 1 Timothy 5.17 says that. Let the elders who rule or govern with authority be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So elders are to rule or govern with authority and to teach and to preach the Word of God. Now, we'll, we'll get into the qualifications of the elder next week, but these are the, the basic functions. Paul is saying here in verse 12 that he does not permit women to teach and to exercise authority over men. And by that, he is saying, in essence, I do not permit the women, women to fill the office of elder in the church. The elders are charged with the leadership and instruction of the church, and it is the, this authority which Paul has in mind. But what does this look like, right? And so, again, he's referencing and putting all of this in the frame of what is happening in the the church in Ephesus and the misleading and uh, um, the, the false teaching that has happened, but he also put this in light of creation, right? The intended roles of men and women in God's created order. So this is... What the authority that Paul has in mind and what it looks like is Christ like servant leadership. Christ like servant leadership. If you look at Christ's words in Luke 22, it says, He's saying to his disciples, The greatest among you becomes as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. So the leadership of an elder is servant leadership. Right? Created order. The way God intended. Elders are to lead by serving and persuading, not by coercion or by force, not by dominion. And this is why, why teaching is instrumental in the leadership of the church. It reflects the God-given roles and nature um, that we were formed in created order. And so he is saying this, this authority pertains to the eldership. And so for clarification, let's define some of these terms, right? Um, authority refers to the divine calling or of, of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and for teaching in the church. And this idea of submissiveness, right? It almost sounds like a bad word. Submission instead refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, right, to honor and to affirm the leadership of the elders and to then be not only affirming the leadership but also be equipped by it for the hundreds and hundreds of various possibilities in which we can minister as men and women in Christ Jesus, right? This is not saying, okay, there are a select few that get to lead and to, to have authority and the rest of you can sit down and be quiet, The rest of you do nothing. That's not what's being said here. You know, instead, submission, this idea of of learning, of being in submission, is this uh, divine calling for both men and women uh, to honor and to affirm the leadership of the elders and to be equipped by it. And then being equipped by it, going out and fulfilling the gospel work in service of Christ. And so what you see Paul doing is this this idea of biblical manhood and womanhood in the body of Christ is each fulfilling the roles that God designed them for whether that is in Christ-like servant leadership for elders specifically or humble submission to be equipped by the teaching of his word for the gospel ministry in the service of Christ's kingdom. And so let's put that in frame of reference from that that Piper quote again. True manhood and womanhood mesh more effectively in ministry. They are better preserved and better nurtured, more fulfilled and more fruitful because God made it to be this way. It is part of his gracious design for the good of men and women. And so there's so much more in this text, right? There's so much more. We didn't even talk about and for the sake of your lunchtime, we won't, but we didn't even talk about what this what this looks like in in the, the clothing aspect. But what are we to do with this information? Why is Genesis three in my mind all week? And it's this mankind, both men and women, suffer under the curse when we fell into sin. And the Bible tells us the story of how this curse is broken. It is broken in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is. And I think the right understanding here of verse 15, right? Verse 15 is, yet she will be saved through childbearing. I'm sure when you read that, you're like, what what are you doing there? What are you doing there, Paul? Throwing that in. But I think this is the this is the understanding, the right understanding of verse 15, right? You have. Mankind, both men and women, subject to the fall and to the curse when man fell into sin. And then the Bible story is just scoping out how this curse is becoming undone and broken by the power and work of Jesus Christ. And so we get to this verse that she will be saved through childbearing. This is that Eve and all of her subsequent children will be saved through the one that is foretold even in Genesis chapter 3, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. And so that's not the the only explanation for this, this verse. There are others, but I think that this is the most helpful in light and in the context of what Paul is saying in these verses here. You see, it is through Jesus Christ that the curse is broken. Now, ladies, gentlemen, hear me this morning. You cannot go back and right the wrongs and undo the curse in the garden. No woman can go back and be undeceived, nor can any man go back and refuse to follow a deceived Eve, nor go back and not cast blame upon the wife and putting her leadership uh, putting her in leadership and casting ourselves as the reluctant follower, right? This cannot be done. The undoing of the curse, instead, must be done by Jesus Christ. You see, if you are in Christ, the call is clear. We must continue to work out in our daily lives what Christ has worked in us. That's what Romans 12 is saying in in verse 2, that we are to continually be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We must be transformed daily through the Holy Spirit-empowered obedience to his word. And so this is the call, right? When Paul is setting the, 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 the record straight for Timothy, he is saying that, uh, brothers and sisters, we are, we are to fulfill the roles that God intended it, uh, intended for us in creation. And so that creation story is in my mind again, and I think of, of the, the whispering serpent, right? The serpent in, in Eve's ear, God, did God really say, that was, that's what he did, right? Did God really say you can't eat of any of the fruit of the tree in the garden? Any of them? With that question, suddenly Eve wasn't sure anymore what God said. Did God, did God really say that? And so we come to these difficult texts, Right? You encounter a text, you encounter something difficult, and you read it, and, and instead of pouring into God's Word, instead of pouring and say, okay, what, what does this mean? The, the whisper creeps in our ear. Did God, did God really say that? Did God really say, you have to be quiet? I'm not allowed to talk? Did God really say, you can't do anything. And so that whisper is in our ear, and and sisters and and brothers, we must learn to distinguish the heavenly voice from the serpent's whisper in our ear. You see, there is no Christ-centered truth, no gospel-centered, Christ-exalting truth found on the lips of those who have decided not to listen to God, There are those that are still being led astray into destruction and into distrusting God's intentions for his words. There are those who are still being led away to distrust God's intention in his word. Just as there are still men who are following those who are led astray. Brothers and sisters, texts like these are difficult. There's so much more to say, right? But we can rest and close in this, that our hope is found in the presence of God and in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in obedience to him and to his word. In obedience to the God who equips us for service. Our hope is trusting in His purposes. The more we trust in His purposes for our lives and the more we trust in and uh, lean into the roles to which we are called, the more we are to see that God is undoing our first failures in the garden. And as God is undoing our first failures in the garden, He is building with us And building us into a new garden, as Ephesians 2.22 says, into a new dwelling place of God in spirit. It says, in him you are also being built up together into a dwelling place for God. So that's my encouragement to you is to, to look at and approach texts like these as words of truth difficult words, but words of truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that difficult texts do not mean a difficult God. Father, I thank You that You have called us to a closer walk with You, out of darkness and into Your marvelous light. Father, as we leave here this morning, as we go our separate ways, um, let us be willing to um, chew on, to meditate upon Your Word, and be stirred and changed by it. It's in the name of Your Son we pray. Amen. Amen.